This is the Retail Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. Place the item in the backing area. We're on that third mega trend where consumers really have taken over the shopping channel because now they're walking into stores a lot more informed. For a lot of brands, especially digital natives, they want to test and see what's working first and then make some educated decisions. We don't hide from the fact that retail is difficult. You know, every day is a challenge, but that excites the customers. They love that. We've got fresh inventory and the doors are open. All right, welcome into the Market Scale Retail Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. This is the second installment of the Retail Podcast. And, you know, really, it makes a lot of sense that we're releasing this podcast now as the calendar has flipped over to December. It's that part of the year where people start to begin uh, thinking about holiday gifts. Now, maybe you're a planner. Maybe you started planning what you were going to get your friends and family uh, for the holidays uh, back in the summer or something along those lines. That's not me, and I'm assuming that's not most of you either, because the malls are jam-packed this time of year. You can't drive down a street where there's a Target without getting stuck in traffic for the next 15 to 30 minutes or something along those lines. It's just that time of year where even your, uh, I don't know, crowd-averse father or crazy uncle or something like that, even they get out and brave the crowds and the traffic and all of those sorts of things just to make it to a store to go buy gifts. So we all know it's that time of year. We all know that that's what's going on. It comes around this time. Uh, you know, you, you start to feel the weather get cold and you just know that that's, that's right around the corner and that's where we are now. We're in the month of December. It's in the home stretch. So if you haven't started your shopping, maybe fire up the Amazon, head out to the mall, something along those lines because we all know it is peak retail season when it hits this time of year. And coming up on the show today, we do have two exciting features that I can't wait to bring to you. The first of which is with Eric Brown. He's the director of account management for Buxton. They're a Fort Worth-based market research firm. And our correspondent Shelby Skirhog caught up with him to talk about new ways that consumer data is being disseminated at the ground level and how cities are getting smart about using their residents' consumer data to help drive economic growth. So a lot of this interview is going to focus around placing businesses where the people are and using data to get smarter about that. After that, our own Elmer Guardado caught up with Paula Rosenblum. She's the managing partner at Retail Systems Research. She's going to talk a little bit about technology in a business context and working on a bench mark for retail innovation and how other retailers can find space in this industry in a world that feels increasingly run by Amazon. So where do other retailers fit into this whole system and this ecosystem of retail? Uh, And is Amazon starting to tail off a little bit on the retail end? Uh, We'll let her tell you more about that as well. We'll also have the market skill news minutes between those two interviews to keep you updated on all the latest news and trends in the industry. But next, it's Shelby Skirhog talking to Eric Brown on the Market Scale Retail Podcast. seems like data and analytics decisions usually flow top-down, but when it comes to retail location scouting, smart retailers are listening to a new voice to make informed decisions, municipalities. Welcome to the Retail Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today, we're talking about how cities are getting smart about using available consumer data to work with retailers directly and how they're driving new economic growth to their cities. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shelby. So let's start by talking about what Buxton does and what kind of market research data we're talking about. 
Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, like you mentioned, we're, we're a market research company. We focus on helping uh, retailers, restaurants, um, healthcare institutions, and, and even municipalities in the, in the public sector understand better about how, how the consumer population lives their, lives their lives and spends their money. You know, from the private sector side of things, this helps companies open new locations, acquire new customers, or communicate to existing customers. And from the public sector side, uh, those cities and municipalities, it helps them actually bring in new retailers and new business by promoting what they have in their communities and, and shedding some light on their residents. So, you know, we've been in business doing this for now 25 years. Uh, you know, it's very exciting and, and dynamic. So that's just a little bit about us. So I understand then that Buxton got its start uh, back in the Radio Shack Tandy days, I think, where Mr. Buxton, he was looking at retail locations um, for new stores. Do I read that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, you know, back in those days, decades ago, you know, the mantra was location, location, location. I mean, you still hear that, but the truth is, and and what what Tom Buxton stumbled on was, you know, that the real answer is it's customer, customer, customer. Because when he was managing a portfolio of stores on paper, they all had the same location characteristics, but the reality was they all performed wildly differently. Basically, what he discovered was that there were different types of people in the trade areas around those locations. And by understanding their different consumer habits or, or behavioral patterns that we could really help all number of brands uh, open locations much more intelligently. And so uh, when you say that you work with even uh, municipalities, that's interesting because smaller cities, especially where maybe they've got a corner shopping center that has just not been able to keep tenants or they've got a, a large big box building that's vacant and now they're looking to try to fill that. But a lot of times the, the municipality's hands are tied to just if they get the attention of, of one of the big retailers and their people start to find that this might be a good location. What are, I guess, some of the specific ways that municipalities are engaging you guys to be able to pinpoint the possible retail location within their cities? Yeah, great question. Really, the the way that it works for us is, is, is actually uh, addressing that key problem that you just mentioned, which is certain cities getting on the radar in the first place to some of these retailers and some of these businesses. And, and like you said, they might have vacancies. They might be trying to get new developments off of the ground. So, uh, you know, really the, the approach or the tactics that we use to help these cities include analyzing their community and their surrounding trade area. Um, and, and I mean, that's e even step one is by using terms like drive time trade area, helping them think about themselves in terms of how far consumers are willing to travel to buy goods rather than their city limits is a big step for a lot of these cities. But um, beyond that, what we really do is we analyze their trade area and see how it compares to where retailers already have stores on the ground. So we do, um, we do a, an analysis based off of all sorts of characteristics like the existing consumers in that city. What is the existing retail uh, footprint, whether from a potential new retailer coming in, their competitive or co-tenant presence, um, all sorts of variables to help, help kind of do this lookalike analysis. And we compare it back to our entire database of thousands of retailers. And basically, we help these communities realize who they look like the most, who makes the most sense to come fill those vacancies or, or be a part of those new developments. 
And we give the, the cities the data-driven tools to go promote themselves and market themselves to the retailers, really indicating that, hey, you know what? We, we've done a study that proves that we look just like where you've put 10 or 12 stores before. So there's no reason you shouldn't be considering us for your next location. And that's that's actually really interesting because I didn't think that uh, that cities really had that power and that ability to to do what a lot of the, the retail location scouts, I guess, of would be doing. So you're able to go in and tell them, okay, so this particular intersection, there have been several other retailers like Target or Walmart or you know maybe uh, one of the smaller chain stores that they've opened locations looking exactly for your type of location. So that includes the traffic there, the age groups, the buying habits, those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you make a great point. I think when our when the communities that we work with reach out and and talk to the retailers and put this information in front of the retailers and make this pitch, the retailers themselves are a little surprised with the sophistication that the the communities approaching them with because by and large, I'd say most communities you know, they, they, they come to the table with some very basic demographics. Sometimes it's out of date. Sometimes it's just the U.S. Census information uh, and it's on, you know, basic mileage rings. And it doesn't really create a very compelling picture. It's just data. So, what we do is we make comparisons for them. We give them an answer that says, your community looks exactly like where this retailer has been successful before. So, lead with that as your as your value proposition or as your, uh, your your competitive pitch there. So, but yeah, you've got it exactly right. We're looking at things like traffic patterns and and uh, accessibility to the highway and 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 doing so, like I said, from a comparative purpose. So it's not just data points. Because I'm sure there's a variety of, of data points there that are you wouldn't even have thought to measure in order to find a good match for a retailer. I guess what are some of the other, um, I guess, more surprising uh, data points that that municipalities are able to to gather and use as their pitch for retailers? Yeah, I think so. Some good examples of this have been things like consumer expenditure type data. So we have access to estimates on on, you know, what is that that volume of spend that's taking place within a given trade area or a community by a, a variety of different sectors, whether it be um, a home and garden or whether it be grocery or furniture supply or what have you. And we can also estimate where those dollars might be leaking out of a community. But we, we've seen our clients use this kind of what we term retail leakage and surplus type data to... Um, help tell a really compelling story. One, you know, one example that took place with one of our communities was uh, they were able to articulate the the approximate amount of spend that was taking place in their community for amusement and entertainment. And they were able to make a very compelling pitch to a, a water park, actually a sizable water park to come in and uh, begin development. And I believe that development's underway now. So, it's it's a it's obviously a powerful piece of information uh, that you know being able to tell somebody, hey, you know, we have lots of consumers that are spending dollars in in your exact uh, sector of retail. You know, you should be coming to capitalize on that. But I think the more surprising fact is that that data is out there. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that that type of information is available. And what do you mean by dollars leaking out of a community? Yeah, so that th this is this is kind of a problem that um, a lot of communities have when they might be classically underserved. 
with retail. So say, say I'm a smaller community and I don't have a casual dining spot or I don't have I don't have the general merchandiser, then that means as a consumer, I'm leaving the community. I'm taking my dollars to the next town over or two towns over, and my dollars are then leaking out of that trade area. And so the municipalities are using this information to say, look, hey, first and foremost, you know, where do we have surpluses? But if we have leakage, what categories are, are that leakage in? And how do we stop it? We need to stop it by getting some of these types of retailers to come in, keep those local dollars local. So then within the retail space, um, obviously this information is tremendously helpful, but you, you touched on this earlier. Um, some retailers or some, some chains are actually surprised by the approach where municipalities are coming to them to pitch what particular inventory, if so to speak, they have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And inventory is the right term. I mean, any given municipality is going to have a, a short list of different opportunities in the community that they're seeking to redevelop or newly develop and, and bring in those businesses. So, yeah, sometimes we see, and, and a lot of times we're joining our clients on the, on the phone, I should say our community clients and jumping on the phone with them, with uh, their target retailers that they're trying to recruit and uh, and help make help them make this data driven pitch and you know like you mentioned the, the retailers are sometimes surprised to see the level of sophistication and the level of analytics that's gone into helping prove out that these these areas for development really match that retailer's footprint so you know and, and retailers have their own toolkit for site selection of course it's just what we found is that a lot of communities that we work with tend to fly under the radar a little bit. They might be a little bit smaller or medium-sized communities. And, you know, maybe the retailer has looked and looked at them in, in the past, maybe two or three years ago. But uh, using our data, we can, we can get that community. Uh, and, and maybe it sounds a little corny, but literally back on the map uh, of that retailer and help, you know, recenter that discussion on the opportunity. So then from a retailer standpoint, then what advice do you have if you are a retail chain uh, that's getting this pitch from a municipality? What are some of the unexpected benefits just from being able to have access to this data and getting it straight from the municipal source? You know, I can't imagine that the location scouts can be everywhere at every time and have all the information. So what benefit is there? So I would say the, the key benefit is these opportunities might present you know significant financial implications for for your site selection and and and, and like you were saying Shelby I mean the, the the site selectors they can't they can't listen to every pitch they can't be everywhere at once many of these folks are traveling um, they're they're scouring the country looking for sites but my advice would be to you know, if, if somebody's coming to you with the, the the sophisticated market research you know clearly condensed packet you know, hear out that community. Take, take 10, 15 minutes just to hear their pitch. I think many retailers would be surprised that, you know, many of these communities, if, if the community has made that level of investment to do this degree of sophisticated market research, that means they really want you, right? So, so that automatically puts you in a, in a negotiating position of power to where you may be able to capitalize on certain economic development incentives. Now, again, I'm not an expert on, on incentives and not every community offers them, but sometimes they're out there. 
But beyond hard and fast dollars and cents incentives, you know, there's a speed to market incentive as well. If you've got a community coming to you with sophisticated and expensive research, that shows you that their city council and their city governance, they're all on the same page. They all want retail. And so your level of red tape could be diminished. Your level of negotiating on certain site characteristics for your build out could be a little bit more flexible. So ultimately, this could really help that uh, as a retailer, it could help your your time to open the doors between groundbreaking and door opening be much shorter than your typical construction cycle. So, there are all sorts of benefits to cooperating directly with the economic development office here. Well, that's a great point. And you started to say this then that if a community is approaching a retailer for this, um, it means that they're hungry. And that's that's a good thing that you often see in, in some other communities where where there's a new shop, a new restaurant, a new something opening up every other week. And that's great. But when you see the communities that are hungry for it, that means you do have a very captive audience and, and a buying public that wants to shop there, that wants to eat there. And uh, I think you're going to, you would definitely see the benefit of just eagerness, I guess, is, is, is how I would describe it. Would you agree? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, and, and, and the truth is retailers are courted often, you know, uh, you, you have some marquee brands out there that everybody wants. But through our analysis, we're typically going to do, uh, do a bit of a, a cooperative exercise with the communities that we work with. To, we're going to tell them, um, we're going to tell them very plainly what the data says and which retailers match the best. But we certainly look for their input into where are their pain points as a community and where does their constituency uh, complain uh, about having gaps in the retail market and so forth. So, um, in many cases, we'll, we'll look to assist and, and, and help, you know, help coordinate with them which, res- which retailers they should be going after. And, um, and yeah, you know, just like you mentioned, when, when you've got a community that's all marching to, to the same beat, I mean, that, that's a night and day difference uh, for, for getting into that market and, and really having a, a successful grand opening. You know, over, over my years and working uh, in, with our public sector uh, division and different clients, you know, I've, I've seen my fair share of governments that aren't necessarily uh, uh, all on the same page and councils that aren't, aren't right. all on the same page with their mayors. So, it's a, it's, it's a big deal when, when they are and it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth hearing that individual out. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Shelby, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to Shelby for conducting that interview. And thank you so much to Eric Brown for joining the podcast today. Coming up next are your Market Scale Retail News Minutes brought to you by Landon Jones today. We're going to talk a little bit about Sears. Are they going to stick around? We look back at some of the trends for Amazon over Black Friday and robots at Walmart. I'll let Landon bring you the stories. These are your Retail News Minutes brought to you by Market Scale. Sears is sticking around. Well, for a bit longer. It won court approval this week for $350 million in critical bankruptcy financing. With this deal and a $300 million loan it received back in October, Sears has secured $650 million to help it stay afloat while it attempts to restructure. As of now, it's unclear what a restructure would look like, but Sears is evaluating offers from both buyers and liquidators. Reuters reports the 125-year-old company's bankruptcy is far from a surprise, 
For seven straight years, the company has seen losses and racked up a debt of about $5 billion. Its debt has forced Sears to sell its power tool line Craftsman to Stanley Black & Decker for $900 million, and just last month, Sears announced it was closing 180 of its brick-and-mortar stores. Some creditors have suggested Sears consider shutting down all of its brick-and-mortar locations, a move that has recently been made by both Toys R Us and Sports Authority. A new study reveals the top-selling brands on Amazon are those that pay to stand out. In other words, sponsored placement ads work. The study conducted by Quartile examined thousands of brands and millions of purchases on Amazon in 35 categories and 11 countries over a five-day period, which included Thanksgiving weekend. Amazon reported Cyber Monday and Black Friday, which both took place during the time of the study, were its biggest shopping days on record. The study found that about 25% of all Amazon orders are generated by ads. According to Retail Drive, that's 3.5 times higher than the return on a Google Shopping ad. Marketers are already attracted to Amazon for its wealth of data on consumer shopping habits, but we may soon see companies shifting their advertising budgets, allocating large portions of money normally going to Google over to Amazon. Amazon is projected to generate $4.6 billion in ad revenue by the end of 2018. A fleet of robots now works for Walmart. 78 Walmart stores now have autonomous floor scrubbing robots that use a cloud-based navigation system and data collection abilities to find their way around and clean Walmart stores. Retail Drive reports that recent trends in automation have left many people fearing that new technologies like autonomous robots will leave them without a job. But Walmart promises the new robot hires aren't displacing human workers. According to a Walmart spokesperson, the robots are meant to free up time for existing janitorial staff to work on other things. The company has plans to add robots to the staff of more than 300 stores in the near future. I wonder what Sam Walton would have to say about that. I'm Landon Jones, and these have been your Market Scale Retail News Minutes. Robots scrubbing the floors at Walmart. Certainly something I did not expect to see coming, but I guess nothing should surprise me these days. All right, coming up next, our correspondent Elmer Gordado caught up with Paula Rosenblum, the managing partner at Retail Systems Research. She's going to talk a little bit about how retailers can find that space in the industry in a world that feels increasingly run by Amazon. So she talks a little bit about how Amazon now looks like how Walmart used to look back when she first got into the industry. It's a really fascinating conversation that I think you're going to enjoy quite a bit. So that's coming up next on the Market Scale Retail Podcast. My company is RSR Research, and we work with technology vendors and retailers both to understand how they can use technology to support overcoming their business challenges and taking advantage of the opportunities that they've identified. So we look at technology in context, and, and we help, therefore, create roadmaps, et cetera, et cetera, for both sides. So, Paul, to contextualize this a little bit, could you give us some examples of the kind of advising you do, like maybe a, a particular case or something? 
Sure, we went in, we went into one uh, vertically integrated retail retailer and really changed the sequence of what technologies they were going to be buying based on what their business requirements were because uh, someone had given them a very um, spurious set of uh, roadmap at that point in time. Um, and we also helped them change the organizational structure to be a bit more functional. Um, another example would be working with a very, very large software company on what the requirements for a merchandise planning system should be based on the data we get from A, the fact that we've all been in the industry forever, and B, uh, we run annual benchmarks on a variety of topics, so we get a broad swath of retailer opinions. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah that's exciting. So then, Paula, what are some of the uh, common mistakes you're seeing, you know, uh, businesses run through? Like, what, what are some things that you find yourself consistently pointing out and, and advising for? Well, one thing for sure is that you can't be Amazon. Um, you know, the, the industry has been obsessed with Amazon for years. You can't be them. And trying to undercut them on price is, is kind of pointless. I think it's fair to say we've reached price parity now. Um, but what you can do is be a better version of yourself to differentiate yourself. And one key factor in that regard is to, is to make your in-store experience more interesting and differentiated so consumers want to go there again. Right, right. And I'm glad you brought up Amazon, right? Because I think that's one that's definitely shaking up the marketplace. And, you know, we, we're seeing in the news that they recently turned a profit. Is this at all interesting to you? Does this affect anything you're doing right now? Is this something you can speak to? I can. I actually think that's really good news for retailers. And I know that sounds very counterintuitive. I, I wrote a blog post on that that's coming out either today or tomorrow. Um, the reason, it, the conventional wisdom is that Amazon never made any money because they were reinvesting everything in R&D. Um, I don't believe that's correct. I believe the reason they weren't making money is they were paying a fortune in shipping fees. And if you've ever bought from Amazon, you're familiar with how much air comes in the box. And that's expensive. So the fact that they're making a profit, I think, is for several reasons in their retail operations anyway. One is that they've offloaded some of their prime uh, fulfillment to third parties. So someone who used to be a marketplace player can now also be a prime seller. Now, the requirements to get in on being a prime seller are very stringent, but it appears, based on what I've seen, that Amazon's ability to monitor their performance is kind of based on how many consumers are willing to complain. And so I'm finding more and more orders, and I, and I use Amazon a lot, I'm finding more and more orders coming late, later than promised, and then later than the second promise, um, and, and <laughs> I mean, this is just amusing. It doesn't harm my experience, but I've had stuff come in Walmart boxes. I've had things come with target tape wrapped all over it. But when you add all that together, what Amazon has done is it's turned a cost, which is the shipping cost into revenue, which is just, you have to pay extra to be a prime seller and they don't have to get involved in the shipping process at all. So that helps them be profitable. Now, what that means is, in the global scheme of things, is that if retailers, other retailers have done their homework and they've gotten the technology in place to help them be more efficient, they have a real opportunity to pick up share because, because Amazon is no longer the fastest and no longer the cheapest. And that's a big deal. If everyone is the same price or relatively close, um, and if you can see a product is going to be fulfilled by a third party, 
you may be inclined, as I tend to be, to buy from somebody else instead. Right. So are, are basically, like Amazon could just be a an asset now. Then, right? If if you know there other people are able to embrace this too. I mean, Amazon, you know, it's sort of like when I first became an analyst, everyone was talking about Walmart. Could Walmart ever be stopped? And the answer is no market is infinite. And, and they didn't get, you know, they didn't disappear. But, but other retailers have found their place in, in a Walmart world. I think the same is true with Amazon. Amazon is going to continue to exist. They actually did say in their earnings call that they expected revenue growth to start tapering off a little bit on the retail side. Um, and that's because, again, no market's infinite. So I think other retailers have a really exciting opportunity, especially those who have a terrestrial presence as well. Right. And I, that's a, such an interesting uh, comparison, the Walmart to Amazon one. I, I had never really thought about that. And I think another interesting about Amazon, too, that has that definitely helped the industry is it's really normalized ordering things on- online in a way that I think no one else really uh really had before so you know anyone anyone trying to start a a a business that's you know solely online or or doesn't have a storefront i think yeah definitely benefits from from you know amazon's huge push into normalizing the 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 entire concept of just ordering something online and and being sure it's going to get there relatively soon yeah i think so and i think we have to give some props to apple on this score too it's the iphone that really transformed everything i mean all of a sudden, and, and it's not like Apple was the first smartphone. Microsoft and HP actually had one several years before, but it was the one that took off. It was the one that changed everything, right. and, and it was the one that allowed for 24 by 7 shopping, price comparisons, the whole nine yards. It really changed everything. Yeah, no, no, for sure. So shifting gears a little bit, I want to go back into something you said where you mentioned putting technology into a business context, right? Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Sure. I think I, 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 sort of in, I sort of hinted at it when I introduced myself. But um, a lot of analyst companies rate technologies and they tend to rate the vendors one, one against the other. And that's an interesting exercise in some industries. In retail, I don't find it terribly useful, particularly. But nonetheless, they do it. What's much more interesting to me and to us as a company is to take a look at the challenges and opportunities that retailers see in front of them, the external challenges and their internal obstacles as well. And if they can overcome their internal obstacles, how they can use technology to take advantage of opportunities. That's the contextualization of it. So we can talk about the value of content and someone can play rate the vendors in, in, in terms of, of their ability to deliver content across all selling channels. But that doesn't help you understand the why of it. That doesn't help you understand, is it, a, is it a factor in success? And the other thing we look at when we run these benchmark studies, we do about eight to 10 a year, is we, we compare those who overperform in comparable sales to their peers. And what we invariably find is that those who overperform don't do it by accident. They do it because they think differently they respond differently to the challenges they face. They tend to use technology differently. Uh, right now, I'm working on a report on retail innovation, and we find that overperformers, who we call retail winners, are much quicker to adopt technology than their peers. They're, they're, they're willing to be a leader rather than just a fast follower. Have you seen this shift kind of organically happen as just technology becomes 
more and more integrated with you know everyone's life is has it been like on par with that same growth uh it's been painful for retailers because because re, you know yeah. retailers have a love-hate relationship with technology in many ways um you couldn't get to the size and scale of of today's the retailers we think of in top of mind today without technology and retailers obviously know it you know, you couldn't have a thousand stores if you didn't have technology to gather and mash up and analyze the data. But on the other hand, uh, you've got these relatively thin operating profits that just get thinner when you start adding when you start adding technology onto it. So historically, retailers have underspent on technology. Um, they're now in a position where they're going to have to overspend for a couple of years to get up to the level where the consumer expects them to be. Right. And that's interesting how, you know, I think consumer expectation is definitely driving this shift, right? Because totally it's dragging retailers kicking and screaming. If they'd had their drug, right. believe me, this was not, you know, if, if you were sitting, we, we formed our company in June, 2007. And at that time, if you were sitting at a corporate, uh, uh, executive steering committee for IT, um, your list of priorities didn't include all of this, you know, uh, content across channels, building community across channels, just this anytime, anywhere retailing. It didn't include that. The iPhone came out and within a year, it was top of mind for everyone. And how do you satisfy the consumer? How do you mitigate the impact of out of stocks? How do you mitigate the impact of overstocks in certain areas? And that turned out to be using stores as active members of the supply chain, not just uh, endpoints on the supply yeah, chain. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's clear as a day now, right? I think in, in retrospect, everyone's uh, kicking themselves for not, for not uh, making that shift happen organically. You know, it's painful. I mean, I mean, I mean, I can appreciate if, if you, if having grown up in this industry and worked for retailers that were starting from scratch, you know that you build it based on a model, based on a pro forma. So, Paul, you mentioned earlier that you were working on a, a benchmark about retail innovation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we're trying to understand how retailers, A, where they look for sources of innovation, B, you know, what their plans are for innovation, things like that. Um, there's definitely a lot of interest around, around innovation in retail. And one of the reasons we undertook this study was because we wanted to make sure that um, that retailers were responding to the challenge, which is to basically overspend on IT and then and then uh, for a time anyway. So we're finding some really interesting things. I started talking to you before I think about retail winners, those who overperform, and what we're finding is that they are much more interested in being leaders rather than fast followers or even slow followers. They want to move forward because they have to. They recognize that you have to move fast. You know, back in the day, we used to talk about retail time. And retail time was oh so fast, right, compared to other industries where things moved kind of glacially. Well, it turns out that now, now retail time is actually too slow because consumer time is crazy fast. And so retailers who, who have been in this space of moving along and kind of underspending on IT because they do have a love-hate relationship with it are now being forced to A, embrace it, and B, get a lot faster, faster in their bringing of product to market, which they need technology to help them do, faster in their responsiveness to consumers, faster in their putting out of content, 
faster of them create in creating community. They just have to be fast. And to do that, you need technology. It's kind of like that. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's kind of I think it, it, it very much feels like common sense, right? But when you really get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's kind of insane how much of this, uh, uh, you know, all of these these big pushes are definitely coming from the consumer side, right? Absolutely. So one of my last questions for you, Paula, um, which is another thing I found really interesting from your uh, pre-interview survey, was we asked you, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in the industry? And you gave us a list of three things. So I was wondering if we could go through each one and uh, kind of break them down. Sure. So the first one you, you gave us was a, a lack of, of uh, personalization. Yeah. If you think about going into a department store, just think about that term. It's saying, okay, we're going to have you shop by department. So you're going to go to the Mrs. section, or you're going to go to the junior section, or you're going to go to the men's section. Or if you're fond of brands within that section, you'll go to a brand. But you really have no way in a, in a quote, department store type environment to go to a place that's a, that works for your lifestyle, right? And consumers very clearly are interested in curated or narrowed assortments so that they don't have to wade through things they don't care about. And so one way that one company is trying to deal with this is Macy's. Macy's bought a company named Story, which was a small company out of New York. Uh, are you familiar with them by any chance? So the thing about Story that was so cool was that it was different themes all the time. Now imagine if, if, if they can scale this and put these the little themes in, in Macy's around the country, and then say, if you, for more like this, go to, you know, go to, go to the second floor or go to go over to here, then you can create this curated kind of assortment and create some excitement and some sense of urgency within this very large box and put that product in context. And that's kind of a piece of personalization in the store. Online, it's a similar kind of thing. Most websites that you go to say, okay, are you shopping for men? Are you shopping for women? Are you buying tops? Are you buying bottoms? So it's almost like the website is looking like a department store. How much better if it looked like, here's the things we think you might like to see today. How much better would that be for the consumer to not have to wade through extra keystrokes and extraneous product that they just don't care about? Right, right. Yeah, that just, that just makes sense. So, Paul, the next thing you listed was hyper-promotionalism, which I think is kind of related. Yeah, I think Amazon, well, Walmart kind of started this craze back in the early 2000s. Um, Amazon has, has, has certainly uh, increased it, and that is to use price as a primary driver of demand. And, and if you think about doorbuster sales and you think about opening on Thanksgiving, all of that is what I call hyper-promotionalism. You don't make a lot of money from it. Retailers don't. Um, I'm not clear that at the end of the day, even the total sales for the season are higher than they were going to be. All you've done is cost yourself money. And it seems as though retailers have grown a bit addicted to it. And consumers have as well. And, and, and it's easy for retailers to consistently say, well, consumers demand it, but the truth is we've trained them. <laughs> we've trained right, them to right. expect and demand that, you know. Right. It's that relationship. Absolutely. So, uh, and the last thing you, you mentioned, Paula, 
was changing the in-store model to reflect new consumer taste. Yeah, I just the example I just gave you about story inside the body of 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 of, of the departments of uh, Macy's is a really good example of that. Um, big box retailing is getting very tired, and so there has to be a way to create intimacy inside this big box. Target has done it uh, by starting to create a second door. So you can go in one side and it's basically kind of like a convenience store with a smaller, a narrow assortment of product. Or if you're on the big shopping trip run, you know, you go through the main door and you walk through the entire body of the store. So that's, that's the big, that's part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge is that employee, if you want someone to go to the store, it has to be a better experience than shopping online. That's why I'm not such a fan of Amazon Scan and Go, because why would I bother getting in my car, <laughs> right, driving to a place, putting stuff in a basket, putting it in a bag, when I can just click and go, <laughs> right? I don't have to leave the house. I don't have to do that. So the challenge becomes, how do I make malls and stores interesting in the 21st century? And, and, and you can see a bunch of companies that are doing some very uh, interesting and innovative things to make this in-store experience more fun and festive. Certainly malls are adding rides, they're adding movies. There's a mall opening down where I live in Miami that's going to have a ski slope, which I don't at all understand, but okay. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that, that sounds like the, or not even sounds, it smells like desperation, right? Like it, it's, well, it, it's, it's, I don't, I don't even know who that's for. <laughs> well, it's for tourists. I mean, I mean, when you come yeah. here, you know, the thing with tourist towns is when, the, when it's a rainy day, what the heck are they going to do? Interestingly enough, I've talked to, um, and this particular mall we're talking about is a new one that's been proposed by the guys who run the Mall of America, and it's meant to be the biggest mall in the country. Now, putting aside whether I think Miami needs another mall or not, um, I, I did spend some time a couple of years ago with the CEO of Bal Harbor Shops, which is a very high-end mall here in Miami. And apparently, 85% of his traffic is tourists, which is phenomenal, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's, a, that's an amazing number. So, um, you know, it, it, tourist towns tend to be a little different than other towns. They can absorb more. Even if you go to Orlando, there's all these um, right. discount malls and things like that. Thank you so much to Elmore Gordado and Paula Rosenblum for the insight there. I really enjoyed that interview quite a bit. I hope you did too. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Retail Podcast. We do appreciate you listening very, very much. If you enjoyed this content, there's more just like it over at marketscale.com. So head over there, browse around. There's plenty of written content as well as more podcasts just like this one for you to enjoy. We'd also appreciate it if you'd share this podcast, if you enjoyed it with your friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, uh, other people in the industry that you think might enjoy it. That would also be a great help to us as well. I hope you have a great week. I've been your host, Tyler Kern, and I look forward to joining you next week on the Market Scale Retail Podcast. Market Scale.